Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 13, issue number 7. This week corresponds with January 30th of 2023. This week we're going to cover quick hits related to COVID and other topics. We're going to look at upstream disease understandings, and then we're going to finish off with the micronutrient selenium. The free thoughts this week. Slowing down aging biologically is finally possible through, wait for it, wait for it, normal lifestyle decisions that we have talked about for years. Not a pill, not some fancy treatment, just good old-fashioned exercise, food, stress reduction, toxin avoidance, and all the above. Go figure. All right, let's get into it. So we are months into a highly infectious Omicron wave with new strains XBB and XBB.1.5 supplanting BA.4 and 0.5 as the dominant strain with absolutely no sign of worsening disease, severity, morbidity, and frankly, looking much more and more and more like the common cold for most everybody, especially pediatrics. We haven't seen a case of multi-inflammatory syndrome in children in over a year, and life seems to be really settling in with COVID now in children. The country as a whole is in the best place since the pandemic began and then became an endemic state. For most Americans, we are dealing with mild disease only. Severity and poor outcomes remain in at-risk groups, despite the CDC not releasing the actual known data regarding risk stratification that could help drill down actual need. The FDA is meeting soon to recommend annual boosters of the bivalent COVID vaccine for all. In this issue, we're going to have a comprehensive coverage of this reality and the knowledge that I'm really not in favor of it. The corresponding podcast is number 38 with Don Lehman, PhD, and it's all about protein. Everything we need to know about protein, how much to take in, what types of protein, what are the effects of protein on muscle mass, lean muscle growth, protein synthesis, all of the above. Very important topic, especially for those as we age. We learn a lot about how children develop muscle synthesis primarily through hormone involvement. But as we age, that starts to shift over into protein intake. So these are very important conversations and to have. And frankly, listening to Dr. Lehman lay out what's going on in the world of the science of protein muscle synthesis is, is quite important. So I highly encourage you to give that one a listen. Okay. Currently, as of January 21st, the data states from the CDC that the strains currently in Omicron variants that are in the highest uh, volume is XBB 1.5 at 49%, and then followed by 27% of BQ 1.1, and then 13% of BQ 0.1. Now, again, these are just the new variants, but nothing major has changed. Let's go to the quick hits. Number one. An article in Nature looks at the ways that COVID has affected our ability to mount a response to future variants. They discuss imprinting, affinity maturation, and more related to the ancestral SARS-2 strain and the current variants of Omicron. This is covered in detail in the article as well as the upcoming podcast with Dr. Offit Part 2. From the article, quote, imprinting equips the immune system with a memory of an invader that helps it prepare to do battle again. The key players are memory B cells, which are generated in lymph nodes during the body's first exposure to a virus. These cells then keep watch in the bloodstream for the same foe, ready to develop into plasma cells that then churn out antibodies. The snag comes when the immune system encounters a similar but not identical strain of a virus. In this case, rather than generate new or naive B cells to produce tailored antibodies, the memory B cell response kicks in. 
This often leads to the production of antibodies that bind to features found in both the old and new strains, known as cross-reactive antibodies. They might offer some protection, but are not a perfect fit to this new strain. Imprinting was first observed in 1947 by Dr. Jonas Salk and Thomas Francis, the developers of the first flu vaccine, together with another scientist, Joseph Quilligan. They found that people who had previously had flu and were then vaccinated against the current circulating strain produced antibodies against the first strain they had encountered. Francis gave the phenomenon the tongue-in-cheek name original antigenic sin, although today most, research call, most researchers prefer to call it imprinting. End quote. That comes to us from Brazil R. et al. 2023. For me, this is a major reason why the current bivalent COVID vaccine has no benefit offered of the original vaccine and or prior natural infection, which is the most important reality of today. Number two. Dr. Offit in the New England Journal of Medicine writes, quote, Fortunately, SARS-CoV-2 variants haven't evolved to resist the protection against severe disease offered by vaccination or previous infection. If that happens, we will need to create a variant-specific vaccine, although boosting with a bivalent vaccine is likely to have a similar effect as boosting with a monovalent vaccine. Booster dosing is probably best reserved for the people most likely to need protection against severe disease, specifically older adults, people with multiple coexisting conditions that put them at risk for serious illness, and those who are immunocompromised. In the meantime, I believe we should stop trying to prevent all symptomatic infections in healthy young people by boosting them with vaccines containing mRNA from strains that might disappear a few months later. End quote. Dr. Offit, 2023 New England Journal of Medicine. Tell you, can't agree anymore with Dr. Offit. I find him to be one of the more rational thinkers in this space. Number three. In the New York Times, we see a piece discussing the FDA's plans to push a yearly annual COVID booster for all. Many of the advisors are not in favor of the plan, as stated in the article, questioning the lack of data to support this decision and the lack of severe disease in the vast majority of the population. Now, this comes to us from Mandavilli, M-A-N-D-A-V-I-L-L-I-A, 2023. Me personally, I will be against any mandatory vaccine annually and for a personal choice to vaccinate every year. For those that feel that the science warrants it, that's up to them. Not for me. I will not be getting or encouraging a yearly vaccine for my wife, children, and any of my close relatives unless they have significant risk, as stated by Dr. Offit. I am full tilt focused on my family's and mine own immune health through solid lifestyle-based principles. I don't see any other way forward. Number four, for a thorough look at this topic, read the Substack articles by Dr. Vinay Prasad. He writes, quote, the average American will not only be tasked with getting a yearly unproven booster and the primary series will be ignored. Kids and older Americans will have to get two doses of the bivalent shot and then placed on a perpetual booster train. Pfizer will keep earning billions. There's no talk of running randomized trials to ensure boosters annually actually lower severe disease in healthy young adults and kids. The risks of myocarditis from perpetual boosting strategy, which are disproportionately faced by young men who have at least or perhaps nothing to gain at all, the fact that these vaccines will always be chasing the last variant, the fact that these vaccines provide no benefit to others because they cannot stop spread, if one zooms out of all of human existence, 8 billion people and 1 trillion human interactions per day, any and all vaccine programs cannot even slow spread. Eric Rubin of New England Journal of Medicine fame says exactly my position. Quote, I think we need to raise the bar and acquire more evidence, end quote. This comes to us again from Substack Vinay Prasad. 
He does raise an interesting point regarding the revolving door of the FDA employees leaving and joining Big Pharma, including former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who is on Pfizer's board of directors currently. Can you say massive conflict of interest? You wonder and you start to think about these things in the context of of conspiracy theories. And again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but boy, it's a bit strange when you see the leaders of the FDA going over to the big companies that are then getting major contracts and are persisting in behaviors of giving vaccines that don't appear to be doing much of anything anymore for the vast majority of us, with the exception of those who have severe disease. This is vastly different than what was happening at the beginning of the pandemic. We're in a new world. That's why this is different. As noted in a 2018 science article, Quote, FDA staffers play a pivotal role in drug approvals, presenting evidence to the agency's advisory panels and influencing or making approval decisions. They are, they are free to move to jobs in pharma, and many do. In a 2016 study the, in the British Medical Journal, researchers examined the job histories of 55 FDA staff who had conducted drug reviews over a nine-year period in the hematogynecologic environment or field. They found that 15 of the 26 employees who left the agency later worked or consulted for a biopharmaceutical company in this space. This comes to us from Pillar C, 2018. Even more can be found in a Wall Street Journal article by A. Finley with discussions about Pfizer and the Moderna cherry-picking their data to support their decisions and not being fully transparent. Man, you can't make this stuff up, but it's quite impressive when you start seeing it real-time and published information. Number five. Novavax's new vaccine has the ability to be as beneficial to naive humans across the globe as the mRNA types without having to deal with the cold purity chain requirements. New data shows that this is likely to be the best and or at least one of the best vaccines in the world for those that still need it. BHIMAN et al. 2023 gave us the data on the Novavax vaccine. Number six. For the immunology interested... We have an article on innate immune evasion by SARS-2 variants. It's a little deep, but very interesting nonetheless. Skip this if you don't like immunology. Quote, initial infection in the airways results in productive viral replication, transforming infected cells into viral factories and hampering first-line interferon-mediated defenses required to slow this process. Complicating things a little further, SARS-CoV-2 also engages a cell to promote a proviral environment which incidentally activates aspects of later stage innate immune defenses. This imbalanced response consequently recruits pro-inflammatory cells to the airways while virus replication progresses unchecked, causing extensive inflammatory and respiratory damage. As infected cells die, inflammatory material associated with the virus begins to appear in the extracellular milieu, enabling the induction of germ interferon response by local bystander cells. As the virus population expands, accumulation and detection of inflammatory debris accelerates, resulting in an interferon signature that can be documented in every organ of the body. This response, which can persist for 7 to 10 days following infection, offers some protection against distal infections, but can also result in organ dysfunction should any underlying condition exist. In healthy individuals, the acute phase of infection can materialize with few consequences and result in successful viral neutralization and resolution of infection." End quote. Minkoff et al., 2023. We know SARS-2 is a little trickster that never ceases to amaze with this technical ability to trouble our immune system and our immune response. little pain in the bottom it is. Number seven, a comprehensive review, a review article on long COVID 
Post-Acute COVID Syndrome, and Nature Reviews Microbiology is Worth a Read. It's written by Davis et al., 2023, and you can find it at the link at the newsletter on SalisburyPediatrics.com website. Non-COVID research, number eight. Meat substitutes from plant origins are not as billed on the label when it comes to iron presence and subsequent consumption-induced absorption patterns because of phytic acid blockade. Quote, lead author Cecilia Meyer-Laba said, Among these products, we saw wide variation in nutritional content and how sustainable they can be from a health perspective. In general, the estimated absorption of iron and zinc from the products was very low. This is because these meat substitutes contained high levels of phytates, anti-nutrients, that inhibit the absorption of minerals in the body. Both iron and zinc also accumulate in protein extraction. This is why high levels are listed among the product's ingredients. But the minerals are bound to phytates and cannot be absorbed and used by the body. End quote. Another reason to eat a balanced diet with mostly plants, but also meats, for rounded exposure to minerals in an easy absorbable state. Also, a great reason to soak beans and legumes in general before cooking and consuming them. All right. Section 2. Treating Disease Upstream. Marty McCary, another guy that I really like to listen to, has a video that tackles this reality. The link is in the newsletter. This is the truth of the problem. Why are we treating diabetes with insulin only? Where are the cooking classes, access to healthy food, counseling, and therapy to reduce the psychological concerns leading to eating dysfunction? The cost of prevention is always significantly less than later treatment, not to mention that preventative education leads to improved health span and lifespan. Our societal, medical, governmental focus is upside down all the way backwards as it relates to chronic disease. The new push to medicalize obesity and label it a genetic disease is absolutely misguided and will lead to more problems over time. Obesity is, as all diseases are, inherently based on genetic predisposition. However, if hardwired genetics are the subtotal of the problem, then why is obesity increasing in incidence over the last 50 years at such an alarming rate? That's not a genetic reality, but an epigenetic cause. Our environment exposures and lifestyle choices are fundamental drivers of obesity and most diseases of aging. To medicalize and reduce it to a hardwired genetic issue is to tell the person that is suffering from the disorder that you have no control over your outcome and we, the medical industrial complex, are here as your savior. This is abjectly false in premise and outcome. This is an anti-self way of living and is rooted in external control instead of self-control. To relinquish one's self-control is to tell yourself that you are not worthy of self-care and self-determination. This is the path to loss of self-mentality and physically. This is true dead end for your health and for your life in general. Giving away your sense of control to another is not the route towards anything positive. This is the direct path to needing medicine to control symptoms as you slowly die with disease. This is not to say that I want people to be controlling. No, this is to have self-determination around your own ability to do the best thing for yourself and not to assume that others are always there to do it for you. That is the problem. Imagine a medical industrial system that prized self-determination over external control. We would need less medicine and live healthier. You see the problem immediately. There's no money in your choice to be your best self from a health perspective, from the medical system's viewpoint. Not to mention the federal government is subsidizing the production of the foods that directly harm us to disease. And our big pharma friends are wasting gobs of money advertising drugs that we don't or should not need on TV and on the web, while keeping the prices jacked up for all to suffer under the cost structure when and if they choose to use them. What an unfortunate reality. The only real option is self-determination and self-reliance to choose health over disease, to choose real food over processed food, to choose exercise over sitting, 
to choose mental stress reduction over anger and vitriol at others, etc. In effect, avoid needing to waste your hard-earned money and time and health span on drugs in a system not aligned with your true best self. It's a crazy thing for doctors to say, I know. I am not saying medicines are not good for us. I'm clearly stating that we don't want medicine unless we have no choice, i.e. after we've done everything we can for a long period of time to control our disease ourselves, preferably to prevent it. Here's a quote from an article on drugs. This is mind-blowing stuff. Drug manufacturers spent $17.8 billion on direct-to-consumer advertising and four, for 553 drugs from 2016 through 2018. And spending was relatively stable at about $6 billion each year. Almost half of the spending was for three therapeutic categories of drugs that treat chronic medical conditions, such as arthritis, depression, and diabetes. The GAO also found that nearly all direct-to-consumer advertising spending was on brand-name drugs, with about two-thirds concentrated on 39 drugs, about half of which entered the market between 2014 and 2017. Medicare, Part B and D, and beneficiaries spent $560 billion on drugs from 2016 to 2018, $324 billion of which was spent on advertised drugs, more than half. Of the 553 advertised drugs, the GAO found that Medicare's Part B and D spending for 104 and 463 drugs, respectively. Among the drugs with the highest Medicare spending, some also had the highest direct-to-consumer advertising spending. Specifically, among the top 10 drugs, the highest Medicare's Part B and D expenditures, four were also among the top 10 drugs advertised spending in 2018, including Eliquis, including Humira, Keytruda, and Lyrica. End quote. Okay, next, selenium, a trace mineral found in some foods and on the earth. A mineral primarily necessary as a cofactor in cellular reactions related to reproduction, hormone synthesis, DNA synthesis, and immune function. It specifically helps against toxic oxygen radicals and oxidative damage. Very important. I love selenium because it helps to recycle the most important antioxidant chemical clearance molecule that we have in our body, glutathione. Without adequate selenium, glutathione levels will drop and you will be much more prone to xenobiotic chemical damage from our chemically polluted world. Dietary sources of selenium come in two forms, organic and inorganic. The inorganic form is found in the soil where the organic form is produced when the plants uptake the inorganic form and convert it. It is stored in our bodies, primarily in our muscles. Food sources are primarily in the fish and animal meats. Brazil nuts are exceptionally high in selenium. Spinach, whole grains, and beans are a good source for vegetarians. Selenium needs are roughly 40 to 50 micrograms daily for teens and adults and less for growing children. Deficiency states are exceedingly rare, but insufficiency is not. Selenium insufficiency is associated with increased risks of cancer, especially GI types, and is protective against DNA damage. Low levels of selenium also increase the lipid oxidation events that lead to coronary heart attacks and high blood pressure. Neurocognitive decline in adults is also associated with low selenium. Selenium is very useful but dangerous in overdose. Selenium toxicity will cause brittle hair and nails, diarrhea, and neurologic dysfunction. Exercise caution when consuming Brazil nuts that contain high amounts of selenium. Selenium supplements affect drugs involved in cancer therapy. Consult your pharmacist when using medicines and taking iron supplements. Work hard to get adequate selenium naturally through your diet. Okay, that's it for this week. 
I hope you enjoyed it. As always, the song of the week is The General by Dispatch. Don't ever forget, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this audiocast newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician and or healthcare professional, not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter audiocast does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.